Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Hello, everyone. I have missed you. I've been away two weeks visiting some of the churches in our big family, wider family of churches, and as great as they are, there is something about being amongst people who know you, the good and the bad, and love you, that just makes you feel safe and makes you feel cared for, and you guys love so, so well. I commend you for your great love for me and for everyone else amongst us. I'm going to start by praying. Father God, I thank you that you are already present in this place. Your spirit is already moving amongst us. Your desire is to heal. We've already heard that today. We've heard that your desire is to give us life and freedom, to bring us into greater knowledge of your love for us. And I pray that our hearts would continue to be open to the ministry and the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at a... Oh, magic, it moved. We're looking at King Hezekiah. This is in 2 Kings 19. If you have a Bible, it's always good to have that open, but it will come up on the screen. Um, But first, let me give you a bit of a recap. So we've been in a series looking at the kings of Judah. Uh, This is before Jesus arrived on the scene. The kingdom of Israel was one kingdom and it had three kings. King Saul, David, and Solomon, and then it was divided into two. And so we've been looking at the kings of Judah, which is one of the halves that was divided. And we've been looking at all the kings. A lot of them are good. A lot of them are bad. Today's one is really good. There's a a bit in 2 Kings 18. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, So that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he felt held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. There was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him. This is quite good. So we're going to jump into a story where um, King Hezekiah is reigning in Judah, and there is a... um, It's in a bad state. It's in a bad state. His father before him was a very bad king. And so when he started reigning, there were idols and there were altars on every corner of every city. The people of Judah were committing adultery. They were worshipping false gods. The temple had been emptied and ransacked of all of its precious artifacts. The doors had been shut. Worship had stopped of the living God. The Levites, that's the priests, they'd stopped performing their duties And all the offerings and the tithes, the feast days, they were not being observed anymore. Judah's in trouble. But within the first year, Hezekiah did a whole massive transformation of the nation. He removed the idols. He destroyed the high places and altars. He repaired the temple. He saw it cleansed. He saw the priests called back to their duties. He saw the people of Judah return to worshiping God. He, he called them to begin to offer sacrifices again, to observe the feast days again, and to bring their tithes and their offerings again. So good. But whilst all this good stuff was happening, There was an enemy at the gates. So the kingdom of Assyria was rampaging through ancient Middle East. 
He was going, invading nation by nation. The king was conquering city after city and very soon they were in the kingdom of Judah. One by one, the cities of Judah fell and Hezekiah found the enemy at the gates, laying siege to his city. And the king of Assyria sent messages, messengers because he wanted to hurry up this siege. He wanted the kingdom of Judah. He wanted the city of Jerusalem to, what's the word? Surrender. He wanted them to surrender quickly. So he decided that he was going to use the powers of intimidation. So we're going to jump into the passage. This is 2 Kings 19. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to read it from the screen because it's bigger. <laughs> now the king, this is the king of Assyria, he sent messages again to Hezekiah saying, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva? Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of King Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from the hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Then we skip forward a bit. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. How does Hezekiah react when this enemy king comes and intimidates him and speaks words that are evil of the Lord his God? He enters the temple with the letter and he prays. He says, hear the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to mock you. Lord God, save us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Now, instead of arguing with the enemy, he takes their threats and their mocking straight to God and prays for deliverance. Hezekiah's prayer is a wonderful example of God-centered prayer. And what happens? The Lord answers. We're told that all, so many, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers die in the night and the enemy retreats. But we're going to look at this prayer in a minute, but we're in danger. You might not know it, but we're in danger. <clears throat> 
going to tell you a story. We like stories. Abraham Wald, Wald, let's go with Wald, he was a statistician during the World War II, and he was tasked with working out how best to armour Allied planes. Now, armour is heavy. If you put too much, the planes are too heavy and they can't manoeuvre as easily. But if you apply too little, it's not enough to protect them from bullets. So, this statistics group needed to find an in-between option. They needed to find exactly where the planes should be reinforced so they weren't too heavy, they weren't too vulnerable. So, when the planes returned from fighting, they gathered data about where the bullet holes were located on the planes, which we have this amazing picture will come up. There we go. So you'll see that they soon discovered there was a pattern that the returning planes, they had the most damage, you see, along the, along the wings. They have it along the bits of the tail, a bit along the fuselage, which is the tube down the middle. I had to Google it. But there wasn't very much around other areas. So they saw this pattern, and the military concluded, OK, we need to strengthen these areas where there's loads of bullet holes. These are the places that are most commonly damaged. These are the places that the bullets are hitting. So that, if we reinforce those areas, that means the planes won't get shot down. However, when they brought this to Abraham Wald, what did he say? He said no. He said no, 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 if someone's heard the story. Because he asked, where are the missing bullet holes? Because you would think, well, keep, this, keep the thing up, you're doing well. You would think that the bullet holes would be an even spread. Why was it that there were missing bullet holes? And Abraham Wald asked this and he reasoned, the reason that there were fewer bullet holes around the cockpit, around the nose of the plane, around the engine, those were the planes that weren't making it back. The missing bullet holes were the areas where they needed to have armour, where they were most vulnerable. Now, we're in danger of making the same mistake. When we come to the Bible, we can often look at stories and see them within just within themselves, not looking at the wider picture, and get this idea that, oh, there's a pattern, and then we'll draw the wrong conclusions. And then we need to remember there might be some missing bullet holes. So as we look at this prayer and how God answered, we're going to see some patterns. We might draw some conclusions. But I want you to be asking, where are the missing bullet holes? All right? Let's get cracking First, we're going to look at the first bit of Hezekiah's prayer, magnify. Let's get this up on the screen. Two Kings, verse 15, it says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. What does it mean to magnify? What does it mean to magnify? Now, there's two types this is again, Google has helped me. So the first one is microscope magnifying. So this is when you make a small object much larger than it is. Now, and then there's the other one is telescope magnifying, which makes a large object begin to look as big as it is. Obviously, we'll never see the vast size of a planet far away, but with a telescope, we'll begin to see how large it really is. Now, we're very good with microscopes. We can all take tiny problems and magnify them until they become overwhelming. 
or at least I do. That's what I do. But it takes a lot of effort. I don't know if you've realised this. It takes creative effort to imagine all the scenarios. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I rock up and make a complete plonker of myself? What if, what if, what if? It takes emotional effort because we start to feel the potential of negative scenarios. We're going, oh, if that happens then, and then fear rises up and we start to feel really strongly about things that haven't even happened. It takes mental effort because we start putting into place plan A, plan B in case plan A doesn't work, plan B and then C and then D and then E. We start thinking, okay, right, what, what if this happens, then I should do this. And if that happens, it takes effort to magnify tiny things and make them overwhelming. But we're really very well practiced at it and we don't even realize the effort we're putting into it. What we're probably not so used to or good at is telescope magnifying. Specifically, magnifying our great and awesome God until his greatness becomes overwhelming. Gaining a right view of God. Now, what would that effort look like? Imagine applying creative effort to magnifying God. Imagine thinking up scenarios. If this verse is true, what if it is true, what would happen? If God says he'll provide for me and I don't have to worry, what would my life look like? What would it look like if he says he puts the lonely in families? Oh, imagine if I'm in a family of people. What if, what if, what if? What about applying emotional effort? Feeling, what would it feel like if his nearness was with me all the time? What would it feel like to be in a boat in the middle of a storm, but God's there? Peace. I'd feel peace. Then thinking of the mental effort, putting into place plans. What if God did save 100 people and add them to our church next week? What if he did a miracle amongst my friends? What if he healed someone I prayed for and then they would become Christians? Then I'd disciple them. Then what if, what if, what if? What if we started to apply some of our efforts to magnifying God? But the first question is, who are you magnifying? Who is your God? Here's a quote by A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The size of the crisis in front of us, in front of you, has never, can never, and will never be greater than the greatness of our God. But often our thoughts of God are too small or they're nothing like what the Bible says our God is like. Here's another quote from Delighting in God. People would like to pull God down and make him small so that they could have a God their size, though maybe a little bigger so he could help them when they're in trouble. But our God today is like an old uncle whom we want to keep on good terms so that when the time comes, he'll make us rich or help us in some way in a business deal. We want to be able to use God for our purposes. I would not bow my knees to that kind of God. The God that can get me on my knees has to be infinitely higher than I am. He must be so high and lofty and glorious that I could join the angels, the seraphim and the cherubim to cry, holy, 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 Lord God of Seboath, which means armies and hosts. He would have to be so mighty that he could put the world in his hand. 
He would have to be bigger than the devil, greater and mightier than the mountains, and grander than fire. He would have to be all that and much more to be a God I could worship. The God who I could think up with my head, I will never get down on my knees to worship. Never. If our problems and our fears, if our crises are bigger than our God, it's time to wake up. We might not have a right view of the right God. When a crisis hits, start by magnifying God. Put in the effort to fill your vision with a right view of God so that he engulfs the size of your problem. This is what Hezekiah has taught us to do. Next, what did Hezekiah do? Two kings, then verse 16. After praising God, he said, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. How did he mock? He said, Will your God save you? Look at the gods of the other nations. It didn't save them. How could you ever believe that your God will save you? What a crazy thing to say. What mockery of our God. So after praising God, what does Hezekiah do? What does he do? He moves on to the crisis. But what is the crisis? What is the problem? The problem is that there is an enemy rising up against the kingdom. Friends, we've got to remember, those of us who follow Jesus, we've entered into a spiritual battle. It's a battle between God's rule and reign and a defeated enemy who's still causing pain and chaos. There's a prayer that Jesus taught us. It has a line in it that says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. As we grow to know God more and more, we should become more concerned with kingdom problems than earthly ones. And with a right view of God, we'll want to see his kingdom come. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when God's kingdom comes? I'm going to do a little exercise that came to me whilst we were earlier. I'm going to read out some things. And if they... If, if they apply to you, I just want to say, I want to hear you say amen from your seats, okay? All right. <laughs> Excellent. Pete's with me. So, in God's kingdom, the sick are healed. The captives are freed. Gladness is given to those who mourn. The weak are strengthened. The poor are made rich. The foolish are made wise. The guilty are judged. <laughs> it's true the guilty are also set free from judgment the humble are exalted the lonely find families the grieving are comforted the lost are found the broken are made whole the victim become defenders the weary are given rest who wants to see God's kingdom come <laughs> Our prayers should revolve around seeing the effects of God's kingdom come to places where a defeated enemy is still causing chaos and loss and where sin is still causing division, destruction and death. A little warning though. When God's kingdom comes, sometimes it brings discomfort to our own lives and disruption to our own lives because within us there is sin. Within us there's chaos. Within us there needs to be a kingdom coming. If our prayers only ever revolve around our comfort, our success, our life, this life, and not around kingdom issues, 
again, we need to revisit our view of God and what his kingdom is. This is what Hezekiah was concerned about. God, your kingdom, there is an enemy at the gates. What are you going to do? Next, what did he do? He prayed. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. No other gods. Hezekiah reminds God that there is no other God or idol who could ever save them. How we pray reveals the kind of God we believe in. How we pray reveals the kind of God we believe in. When a crisis hits or a problem comes our way, what do we do? What do you do? What's your first response? If you've got a right view of God, where you believe that he is who he says he is, then we will realize that nothing and no one else is worthy of our trust and our confidence, and we will pray. There's a quote from Oswald Chambers, which uh, There are stages in life when a crisis arises that we instantly reveal upon whom we rely. If we've been learning to worship God and to trust him, the crisis will reveal that we will go to the breaking point and still not break in our confidence in him. With a right view of God, we know that he will never be shaken or surprised by what happens around us. But also notice how he prays. So now, O Lord God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Hezekiah is concerned with salvation. He's concerned with the answer to his prayer. He's concerned with the enemy that gates. But he's also concerned with the kingdom. Namely, that through the saving of Judah, the true king, God, will be made famous. He's concerned with the fame of God. With a right view of God, our salvation leads to his glory. When he answers our prayers, what do we do? Do we make much of God? Are we telling others about his prayer? Are we, are we trying to make him famous amongst our friends as the God who loves us and hears us and is big enough to help us? When God has answered your prayer, have you told anyone? Have you made a song and dance about it? Look what God does. Look what he did, making much of him, making him famous. All right. Remember what I said about being in danger? Anyone see any missing bullets? Here was the pattern. The pattern was that when Hezekiah prayed, God answered. And from that pattern, we can draw conclusions like, if I learn to pray like this, God will help me. Or, it depends on me and how well I pray to see God answer. What are the missing bullet holes? The missing bullet holes is, our prayers don't save us. God does. How well or poorly we pray isn't what saves us. It's God, it always has been, it is, and it always will be. Let's not get, fall into the danger of concluding that I need to learn how to pray amazing prayers or else God won't answer me or else God won't hear me. He hears you. He hears you. In fact, looking at Romans, there's something beautiful that it tells us. Here it is. It talks about, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
Oh, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Friends, the greatest problem we've ever faced is not any crisis that comes our way, but our own sin, rebellion, depravity, brokenness. We were worthy of judgment before a righteous and perfect God. And before we even prayed, he had already decided to send his son to die so that we might live. Before we even prayed, salvation was on its way. <laughs> Whilst we were still sinners, when people had their backs towards God, when, he didn't, when they didn't even love him or follow his ways, he made the first move. Before the first prayer, before we even knew we needed saving, God moved toward us in love. Our prayers don't save us. God does. And the biggest problem we will ever face is the problem of our own sin. The penalty for rebellion, it means eternal death. Worse, it means eternal separation from God. <laughs> The cross of Christ was no accident. It was a king leaving a perfect kingdom to enter into our world of pain and death and suffering to save us out of it. Death is our destiny. destiny and without the cross where he died in our place, we will end up in death. But with the cross, should we believe it and its power, we'll know life. Romans also says in 10 and 11, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We now have the right to enter the throne room of God with prayers and requests. That's insane. We have now been made righteous and perfect so that we can walk into the throne room of heaven and say, God, look at their threats. Look at their mockery. Look at what is happening. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And as we heard earlier, we have the right to call God Father. Father. The way you approach a king and the way you approach a father is very different. Do you ever go, if you have a father in this life, do you ever go to your dad and be like, oh, father, Lord of this household, we pray, would you hear us and our requests? Well, that would be ridiculous, isn't it? We can go and just say, Abba, I need you. I need you. Look at this problem. Help me. That's incredible. That is what Christ has won for us. That is what Christ has won for us. Let's go into the next quote. There is nothing in time or eternity more absolutely certain and irrefutable than what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. He made it possible for the entire human race to be brought back into a right standing relationship with him. He made redemption the foundation of human life. That is, he made a way for every person to have fellowship with God. I want to remind you, friends, sin wasn't the problem the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem was being separated from God by our sin. We've been saved not from sin, just sin, but also into relationship with God. That is why we can pray. That is why we do pray. Our prayers don't save us. Who does? 
God does. And if he wouldn't even hold back his own son to solve our biggest problem, we could be confident to bring all our problems to him in prayer. Right. I believe that there are some of us sitting here who are suddenly aware that our problems are a bit bigger than our God. I think there are some people here who are aware that they need to revisit who they see God to be. Is he the God of the Bible or a God of their own thinking up? There are some of us here who would rather have a God who makes our lives easier than pray for his kingdom to come. And there might be some amongst here who are aware that they're not even saved. That sin is still a barrier. That they're in need of what happened on the cross to come in their lives. I think I'd like to just uh, invite the band up. We're going to have a time just, yeah, responding however God has led us in our hearts. Just take a moment. Is there a part of this that you're thinking, hmm, I want to practice magnifying God. I want to get into the word again so that I get to know who this God is and how great and mighty he is. I want to have a look at what it truly means for his kingdom to come because if it's as good as that, I want that to be my chief concern. And if you're here today and you're thinking, I don't even think I'm saved, I don't even think I know this God, that's already him moving, saving you before you even said a prayer, making you aware that you need to. And so you only need to say, God, help me, save me. And you can talk to us as well and we'll gladly talk to you more.